And what they did was they set up a series of helicopters in the sky and they had gates hanging beneath them like a slalom course for skiers. And we had four people at a time racing a four-way wingsuit cross through these gates in the sky underneath active helicopters. And that was just nuts. Episode 21, Canopy Piloting. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. Our frequent flying guest today is Jason Maledski. Although Jay enjoys many other adventure sports, canopy piloting ranks at the top of the list. He has made around 13,500 skydiving jumps, over 950 base jumps, and if that's not enough, he's made over 500 wingsuit base jumps. Jay has also won numerous medals in the Canopy Piloting World Championships around the world in Austria, South Africa, Russia, and the United Arab Emirates. Jay, thanks for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. All right, so you're here to talk about canopy piloting. First of all, before I have you go into a little bit about yourself, what is canopy piloting uh, in comparison to just skydiving? Well, uh, canopy piloting is kind of like uh, the Formula One of skydiving uh, to compare you know, driving uh, to driving a Formula One car. It would be just jumping out of a plane and flying a normal parachute would be like your everyday driver. And the parachutes we use for canopy piloting they're equivalent to a Formula One racer. Okay, so that's the canopy that you're allowed to do a lot of more maneuvers and stunts with versus just dropping out of the sky. Yeah, very fast, very small, highly controllable, uh, very sensitive, uh, highly tuned machines. Okay, great. Now that we've got that cleared up. So can you take a few minutes to tell our listeners about yourself and your connection to canopy piloting? Sure. Uh, I started uh, skydiving back in 94 and uh, got my foot in the door with canopy piloting at its ground level when it was first uh, originated. So I've been one of the pioneers in the sport for uh, since its origins and I've uh, been lucky enough to be a member of the PD factory team since its uh, origin as well. And that's really been uh, the last 13 years of my life. Uh, pioneering canopy piloting, traveling around the world, teaching others how to do it, competing, and uh, and just living the dream. Okay. So how does one go from taking their first tandem jump out of a, an aircraft with an instructor end up base jumping or putting on a wingsuit? Well, um, you know, if you catch the bug, if you can find yourself in the sky – making a skydive and decide that you want to progress through and become a licensed skydiver, do something, this is something where you attain your own equipment and uh, attain a license to be able to jump. There's a uh, student program that you'd follow through, which has a series of ranking, you know, A, B, C, and D licenses to uh, give you clearance to do different types of jumps and uh, jump different types of equipment, different places, uh, depending on your skill level. Uh, and uh, the canopy piloting is something that is generally coming in towards the later part of that progression. 
Now, what about the various disciplines of of canopy piloting? I mean, there's free flying. There's there's different elements of doing it. What are some of the the different? What are the explanations for a few different things you can do? Well, skydiving's got all kinds of different disciplines in it. Canopy piloting is just one of them. Wingsuit flying would be another. Uh, formation skydiving or free flying would be other disciplines there. Some are oriented around the free fall portion of the skydive. Some are oriented around the flying the parachute, which is where I specialized for most of my career. And then some are oriented around the flying the actual wingsuit, which is what I've moved into in recent years. So you spend a lot of time in the air. That's got to be amazing. It's a great place to be, to tell you the truth. You know, it, it just being in the sky, especially not in an aircraft, as, and being able to absorb and become familiar with that environment it's really a special opportunity. It's a gift. So were you one of these people that used to have the flying dreams and just, just said, I have to do it one way or another? You know, I didn't really know it was coming. I went to make my first skydive just like anybody else. And I didn't really think it was a good idea at the time. I kind of was kind of in a dark place at the time. I was a little sad and depressed at that point in life. And I went to do something to kind of shake myself up, I guess, and it changed my life instantly. It was like turning on a switch, and I never went back. Really? So would you say that's the moment you got hooked? It was It was an instant. Like, get out of the plane. I thought it was going to be ready, set, die, and instead <laughs> it was ready, set, awake, alive, live, like suddenly tune in to the fact that there's so much more to, to, to be doing. Yeah, you got to you get a chance to experience life and that fulfillment instantly and probably switch things around for you right away. Yeah, it totally changed my course. Have you done bungee jumping yourself? Yeah, I've done some bungee jumps, hang gliding, paragliding, all the kind of stuff, adventure sports, aerial sports. How would you compare it? I've never skydived, but I've bungee jumped and I've I would love to hear from from your side how would you would compare the two? I don't I don't really think they compare much at all. Skydiving, um, when you start off, I mean, the whole airplane ride, when the door opens in an airplane, first of all, it doesn't feel like that's supposed to happen. That's a very unnerving experience, and it takes quite a while to get used to the fact that you're gonna every time you go in the plane to skydive, when the door opens, it still jolts you a little bit. Eventually, that becomes a, a very nice feeling. You can't wait for the door to open, and it changes, and you look forward to it. In bungee jumping, you stand on a you know a building or a bridge or whatever you're jumping off of, usually a bridge or a tower of some, some kind. And you're quite still, it's quite quiet. Maybe you have some people cheering you on, but it's all about this quiet place until you leap off. And then the, the moment of free fall goes by so quickly that it's very hard to absorb. In skydiving, it's quite loud. The aircraft is whirring away. There's a lot of wind noise. And when you open the door, it gets even louder. And then you're in free fall for quite a long time. Uh, you know, up to a minute very easily. And with a wingsuit, you could be in free fall for three minutes. Uh, so the t- duration of time spent uh, not connected to the ground or not connected to an object of any kind, it's uh, it's much longer. And that's I guess that's the freedom. That's the part we're all looking for. Yeah, I can see that. So there's a lot of anticipation time in skydiving. Like you say, you're going up in the plane, they open the door, they announce you're at, you're at the level you're going to jump. And there's a lot leading up to it where you're standing on a platform bungee jumping and it's probably a little bit more of a shock initially, but it's it doesn't last 
you know, but a few seconds and you're done. Yeah, it's very momentary. It's got right. definitely got a little a longer sustained period of that free flight portion. So how would you describe the first time you went? Meaning tell us the story of how it worked. So if you're somebody listening to this podcast and says, I would love to try skydiving. I wonder what it's really like. Well, you know, it's changed a little bit since I started. It was over 20 years ago. And now if you're going to go for your first jump, some of the things will be the same. You'll arrive to an airport and kind of have an experience, uh, you know, walking onto a facility, seeing the landing area, seeing the, you know, jumping and packing and loading areas where they'll have the, you know, the aircraft and the parachutes and the, the locals kind of get your first interaction with who are these crazy people that do this all the time. They actually have their lives wrapped around it. They're, you know, it's there every day. And then sign your life away. I mean, pull out the waiver and start signing on the dotted line. That's the first thing you're going to do besides laying your money down. And then put on the jumpsuit, get on the gear, start realizing that this is going to happen. The airplane pulls up. It's noisy. And uh, we're whisked into the plane in no time at all. And the airplane ride is when it starts sinking in because suddenly you realize you're airborne. You got about anywhere from four to 24 people, depending on which kind of aircraft you're in, jammed in like a bunch of sardines, uh, sitting on the floor of a plane that's had the seats all removed. And you're getting a quick briefing from your instructor about what's going to happen in your ear while they're shooting a video of you. And the whole thing's just anticipation is building like crazy. And before you know it, you're at jump altitude Harnesses are all tightened up. The door's opening up. The lights are turning green for you to jump. And the next thing you know, you're out the door of the plane and in free fall. Most people at that point have a very hard time absorbing everything between that and the parachute opening. It's a lot and it's unfamiliar. So we remember the ride up and we remember after the parachute opens, but the free fall portion ends up being a couple of freeze frames in our mind. It's hard to you know, have a streaming video that we remember clearly the whole experience until we've done it a number of times and actually can take it all in. Uh, it's uh, sensory overload. Yeah. So I guess you're, the first timer is probably processing that for days after that. I mean, they have this this rush and then all of a sudden they're falling when they shouldn't be. And <laughs> this noise all going on at the same time and not sure what to make of it all. Yeah. There's a lot of visuals and sensations that you just don't experience anywhere or any other time that are even remotely close. So the first time that you're there, it's hard to even process that they're actually happening. Well, I think that's the moment I would be hooked. I haven't done it yet. It's on my bucket list of things to do. And I, I feel like as, as soon as you get that rush and that feel, that's that's when it clicks. You're thinking, man, this is, this is a pretty good feeling. It makes you feel alive. As soon as you get on the air, as soon as you leave the aircraft and you're in the wind, and there's nothing but you and the sky and the wind, it's freedom. So why would you encourage new people to the sport to go ahead and make that leap? Well, I think the huge value to learning to take calculated risks is learning to process and control your own fears in life. One of the things that skydiving has given me and base jumping has given me the ability to better manage my decision-making when it comes to fear. Fear is a huge motivator, and we don't realize how often we make our decisions based on the element of fear. 
and learning to operate and make decisions where that's a very driving force, but you can't let it affect your processing ability. You still need to be able to think about where you are, how much time you have, what's your situation, and and process all these things and just keep a cool head. It changes the way that you live your life. It changes the way you think when you're on the ground, when you're driving your car, when you're you know in any other situation where you might have to make a decision. Yeah, that's well put. I couldn't agree more. You know, fear is is a healthy thing to have. It's uh, it keeps us in line, keeps us in check. But I think you're right when you in your analogy. You know, when you're out there driving in a car, reacting to life's situations that put you in similar fearful states. You have to understand how to cope with that, you know, in a moment's notice. Yeah. So out of all of these jumps, I mean, like we said in the intro, 13,000, more than 13,000 jumps and, you know, various, uh, you know, wingsuit trips and base jumps. Of all of those times, what would you say was the most exhilarating experience that you had? You know, it's a that's a very typical question, and it's been very difficult over the years to be able to answer that. What was your best jump? What's your favorite experience? Kind of question. And just last year, I had a couple of different experiences that really put new marks, high marks on the on the list. Uh, I finished off my base jumping season last year in France on Mont Blanc uh, on the uh, Aiguille de Midi which is a cable car that runs to a jagged peak at an altitude of just under 13,000 feet above sea level. It, uh, it's quite a short cliff, and it's a little bit a little less than vertical, and uh, it's very daunting and requires you to be exceptionally tuned in and knowledgeable of your own skills uh, if you're going to pull it off successfully. And that was uh, an incredible experience to stand at that elevation above the the Alps in a beautiful no wind day and just launch off at this incredible vista, uh, a very special moment. That along with the most crazy thing I've ever got to do, which I can't wait to do again, last year Red Bull organized an event called the Red Bull Aces. And what they did was they set up a series of helicopters in the sky and they had gates hanging beneath them like a slalom course for skiers. And we had four people at a time racing a four-way wingsuit cross through these gates in the sky underneath active helicopters. And that was just nuts. Wow. So it's like a three-dimensional slalom race. It's a video, real-life video game. That is cool. <laughs> At 130 miles an hour horizontally while your best buddies are trying to nudge ahead of you and pass you through the gate. Now, would you say this is wingsuits? Yes. Okay. Because that's about the only way you can control yourself that way. You're not going to do that in free fall, right? Yeah. Okay. Wow, that sounds awesome. So where did they do that? Uh, it happened in Northern California at a remote location. Uh, and I'm thinking we're probably going to get the chance to do it again sometime soon. Well, that'd be cool to see. Yeah. So can you share a story with us about a time that things didn't go right? I'm sure there's a, a few opportunities to, to speak about. Um, when did things not go right and how did you manage the situation? What advice would you give you know, as a follow-up? Well, 
you know, as a professional skydiver and base jumper for more than 20 years now, I've seen things go wrong for other people many times, and I've had them take some bad turns for myself. I mean, any adventure athlete, you're eventually going to get hurt. I've been pretty fortunate with not having any serious traumas, but a lot of wear and tear, and just, I think, uh, the, my history of being a gymnast as a young man and really made me kind of lucky to get away with some of the harder impacts. Uh, but you inevitably you're going to deal with death in, uh, you know, high speed sports. And, uh, I lost my mentor and some of my best friends along the way. So it's, uh, it's an inevitability of life that we're all going to die at some point. We learn a lot about that in these, uh, in these sports and these uh, types of endeavors. And I think it rounds us off better as people. So what advice would you have, you know, on the level of safety for people? I mean, it, it certainly goes back to, as we witness bad things happen in our sport, uh, we never want to see them, but at the same time. Yeah, for sure. There's a really interesting thing that happens when you first start off in a sport like skydiving, you're have a lot of, rightfully have a lot of fear and very cautious because we don't really have any education. And then somewhere around 250 to 500 jumps, we get this horrible time in our skydiving career where we think we know everything. And they're the most dangerous people in the sky. And I was one of them. Absolutely. I mean, when I had 500 jumps, I was hideously dangerous and I really thought I was good at what I was doing. And so I think caution and being able to keep your ego in check and get good advice, get good coaching, stay on track and not try to take shortcuts and jump ahead of the curve. The experiences that those who have gone ahead of us and made the thousands and thousands of jumps, the experiences that they've had, the mistakes they've made don't need to be repeated. And if we take the time to learn from the people who've already done them, we can avoid having them happen to ourselves. Yeah, I think that's well said. So basically, you know, we don't want to see accidents, but if if they do occur, we need to take something from them. We need to learn from what others have, have made errors on uh, in order to focus on our own safety in the future. For sure. Flight One is your number one source for skydiving introduction and certification. As the leading provider of canopy coaching and instruction in the sport of skydiving, Flight One works with canopy pilots of all experience levels around the globe. Whether you are a first-time jumper or a more experienced enthusiast looking to advance your hobby, Flight One can team you up with an expert instructor no matter where you're located. Visit www.flight-one.com to start your adventure today. Wild Play at Element Parks are where adults, teens, and kids can go for their adrenaline rush. With parks located in British Columbia and Alberta, Canada, your family can experience the excitement of a zip line, aerial adventure courses, and even bungee jumping at the Nanaimo, British Columbia location. Call 888-595-2251 and mention the Adventure Sports Podcast to get the Fearless Fans group rate. Again, that's 888-595-2251. You can also visit Wild Play on the web at www.wildplay.com. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Will you help us spread the word about the show? 
first, tell your friends to give us a listen. You can also help us out by taking a minute and going into iTunes to subscribe, then rate and leave us a review. Thanks for being a part of our show. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition, liftoff. So some people might say that you're crazy for doing the things that you do. Um, why are you not crazy or are you? I am crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually found quite a while in when, when life went from being a blue collar worker with a hobby of extreme sports to being a full-time extreme sports athlete. And, and that being my career, I was questioning my own sanity for quite a long time and wondering why, you know, is this going to work out or am I going to end up dead? What the hell am I thinking? This is insane, you know, but when I consider the alternative, then there's no way that I would want to spend my life turning wrenches and pushing brooms you know for somebody else so that i can grind through every monday to friday when i could be out in the sky and, and living my passions and my dreams with people that are just engaged and passionate and charged with energy and wanting to live so i love being around the crazy people they're fun <laughs> yeah pure energy yeah well, it's better to live life and risk a shorter life while living it than to live in a bubble and watch others do the same. Absolutely. Tell us about your endeavors. What are you involved with? Uh, you've mentioned uh, the PD Factory team. Uh, there's also Flight One. What is it you're up to? Well, I've been a member of the PD Factory team for going on 13 years now. It's been an incredible ride. I'm very, very grateful for the opportunities that have been uh, I've been blessed with through that. It's uh, representing Performance Designs, who's the leading sport parachute manufacturer in the world, along with other companies like Sunpath and Cypress and Liquid Sky, LT2, Flysight. All these companies have done a great job of supporting our project for so long to be able to fulfill our dream of flight. That's been our motto, the dream of flight. Um, and the PD Factory team has gone through many generations now. And uh it's it's still going, and, and I'm curious as to where it's going to go. But in the last few years, the attention's shifted a little and uh, moved out of canopy piloting and into wingsuit base jumping and wingsuit racing in base jumping. And that's uh, so that's where really my focus is in those areas. Uh, for earning a living and for passing on the knowledge, we started Flight One. And Flight One is a collection of all the top canopy pilots in the world that we can get together to be instructors and we put our knowledge into a unified curriculum to be able to pass that on to other skydivers and we work with the military in a large way as well teaching people how to fly parachutes in a modern way uh, in a more thoughtful way in a safer manner and um, passing that canopy flight knowledge we've learned from the formula one world the racing side of things down to the everyday user to the, you know the recreational jumper who's out there on the weekend making a couple of skydives 
who might only make you know twenty or thirty in a year, or onto some special forces uh, jumpers who are going to need that in a more tactical application. So, does Flight One is this a a national thing or is this a local thing to Florida? Definitely international. Um, okay. We have our main uh, headquarters in Deland, Florida, uh, at Skydive Deland. And we work very often with military in a number of different locations. And But our sport branch is, I think we're up to about 30 instructors worldwide now. And we have um, Canada, USA, Germany, England, Italy, Netherlands, Denmark, um, and a long list of places all over Europe. And we're expanding into other areas as well. So it sounds like you guys are tapping into a vast pool of uh, experience and knowledge for, for Flight One. How can people find you if they want to seek out some instruction? Flight-one.com. You'll pull up a page there where you'll get the links to the factory team, the Flight One Sport, or the Flight One military page. That's our hub. Okay, so they go there and then they look in their area where they, they may live and, and sign up with somebody from your team in their area. You got it. Excellent. So how would you say your sport is a benefit to society and others? Well, the work that we've done through Flight One is directly responsible for changing the way that people are flying their parachutes. And in the last decade, the leading cause of accident and fatalities inside of skydiving has been mostly under fully open functional parachutes, people just making bad decisions and either having low altitude collisions with other jumpers or just flying themselves into the ground and ending up, you know, injured or fatal, fatally dead. And so we're trying to change that by spreading knowledge, awareness, safety, and better educating the population, the instructors, the drop zone owners, and the organizations that, that surround them. So we really just want to make it safer and continue to be able to be fun without feeling like there's an unnecessary risk involved. Right, right. So talking about safety, I mean, you guys always have a a main and a reserve chute. Explain or describe how it is when you need to cut away that main. What does the reserve chute do for you? Do you have a, a faster falling speed? It's not quite the same size chute, is it? No. Well... In skydiving, we have a main and a reserve. In base jumping, you generally only use one parachute. And the similarity between the two is that the, the base jumping parachute is quite similar to a skydiving reserve parachute. Where that, that parachute is quite docile, it opens very, very reliably, it has flight characteristics that are uh, maybe less desirable for the everyday use, but it's a very dependable and very reliable system that you can count on to do the job every time. Uh, most of us would prefer to drive something a little sportier if we have the option, if we're, you know, picking up our, a car, but the, the, you know, the Camry or the Honda Accord or whatever is going to be the choice if you're looking for something that's dependable and reliable. So that's how I would, uh, you know, describe the, the main parachute versus the reserve parachute. Yeah, that's interesting. So you have to they have to find a uh, a balance between the reliability and the maneuverability, especially for base jumping. I would think if you're if you're down in a canyon somewhere and 
you know, you have stuff you need to avoid on the cliff walls. You obviously want some maneuverability, but well, they're very uh, first and foremost, you want to slow down. They're right? very maneuverable, <laughs> but they're very also very controllable and very docile. So that during the deployment, the most important thing is that the deployment functions correctly, that the parachute inflates and opens as it should. And then because you don't have a reserve or the altitude available to be able to transfer to another canopy and skydiving when you open your parachute thousands of feet above the ground if you do have a malfunction and the parachute doesn't deploy properly it's plenty of time and space to be able to release it cut it away and then open a reserve which is going to be more docile and the typically the opening of that is going to be more dependable uh and you can count on it to function correctly okay so when you're approaching the ground at you know, at some level, you need to pull your main and make sure it opens correctly so that you have time to pull your reserve if if something happens. Um, what technology do you have that, you know, for altimeters and alarms and whatnot, do you have to, to notify you or to keep an eye on things? We've got a variety of systems. Um, Alti2, the company that takes care of us, uh, providing altimeters, visual altimeters, which have a digital display. So you can see your, your altitude above the ground in feet or thousands of feet if you're in free fall. And then they also function as an audible warning device. So they'll have one inside your helmet, which will beep and let you know what altitude you're at, depending on what you've set it for. There's also a wonderful device that's been created by a company called uh, AirTech. It's the Cypress. And the Cypress is an automatic activation device. We call them an AAD. And if you were to, say, be rendered unconscious by a collision, maybe you hit your head on the plane on the way out or bumped heads with somebody in free fall and you didn't deploy your main parachute, if you have a Cypress, it's going to sense that you're still in free fall as you're passing through a minimum altitude and it'll automatically deploy your reserve parachute to make sure that you get a parachute open no matter what. Uh, that's cool. That was actually going to be my follow-up question is if, if there were situations or systems like that that would automatically deploy for you. Yeah, all tandem jumps and all student jumps in the USA have mandatory AADs use. So you'll never make a parachute jump as a student uh, in this under the USPA without having that device in place. Uh, that's really good to know, actually, I, uh, not being a part of the sport. Uh, that actually makes me feel a bit better. Yeah, it's a really good system, and uh, it saved thousands of people. Right. So as far as base jumps are concerned, any fun stories about a place where you weren't supposed to be jumping from and uh, near escapes or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, as the typical view of base jumping is that it's, a, especially in America, is that it's a illegal, frowned-upon activity. and you know, a lot of the time in the USA, that is the case. It's come from uh, kind of an underground uh, society group of people that would like to sneak into buildings or climb up antennas or sneak out onto a big bridge in the middle of the night and uh, steal some altitude, essentially. And uh, it's changed a lot, actually. In this country, there's still quite a bit of illegal jumping that happens. But there's more and more and more legal locations that are opened up. There's thousands and thousands of places where people are jumping every day uh, that are totally legal. And it's, become, it's, come, it's changed from this underground kind of uh, 
bandit style thing to do to a sport that's actually legitimate and in USA and in Europe and South America and the Orient there's locations where people are jumping legally all the time every day thousands and thousands of jumps going on uh so yeah it's pretty exciting i mean there's so many stories you can go into what's a what's you know so you've been doing this for quite a while um i i'm glad that you clarified the legality of it uh i think you're right i think a lot of people misunderstand it and it, myself you know to be honest uh was assuming that more base jumping was less legal, you know, <laughs> than it is than it is now. I'm oh, glad you clarified and that. That's very much the case, but I think it's it's become that the large majority of base jumping that's done is le- totally legal, and the minority of it is that's done is illegal. Right. Good. So I'm glad that you clarified it, and we have uh, more people with the proper perception. So how about a uh, a good story about? where things were a little sketchy. Um, certainly as the years have, have grown, it's become more legal and more accessible, you know, so people don't have to get into binds with the law, uh, in order to do it back in the, the founding years. Were there any good stories about it? Oh yeah. I mean, my very first wingsuit jump, which was 15 years ago, uh, first wingsuit jump from a cliff. I made, uh, in an illegal location and we when you're jumping in like those type of environments you have to be sneaky about it so that you don't get caught because people don't quite understand it and uh the i had a little bit of a foot slip on the exit just a little bit of loose stone under the shoe as i went to push off and i guess i pushed with a little more energy than usual being that i was a little nervous about being in the wingsuit for the first time and ended up uh, pitching over and almost doing a front flip and it got really, really head low. So just basically diving straight down the wall without getting that nice launch and fly away that I was playing. <laughs> and ended up doing a, a pirouette, you know, a spin on my head going straight down this cliff and just realizing at the time, I'm like, oh gosh, if I don't just follow this around and go with it, it's going to go really bad. And I get through the flip and this, the barrel roll and I pull out and only have a few seconds of flight after that end up opening fairly low, barely making it across this large whitewater river and landing on the edge of a 20 foot embankment, you know, with my parachute draped off the edge. I look up to see my jump buddy exit moments after and his parachute opens facing the wall. And in seconds after that, he impacts the cliff uh, thousands of feet above the ground and it breaks his leg on the impact. Now he's going to land his parachute in a very inhospitable landing area with a broken leg. So he opts to put it in the water, uh, which is a treacherous whitewater river. And now we're trapped in the bottom of this canyon thousands of feet down. And we've got to hike out with him with a broken leg and a bunch of wet gear. So it was an adventurous day to say the least. Wow. And you got to do it. So no, nobody notices you coming out with the shoots because it's obvious what you were doing. Yeah. So everything's you know, tucked away in backpacks and, uh, you know, we're looking like making the best we can look like hikers who had a bad day and rolled an ankle, you know? Right. So how do you deal with that? If somebody were to get, uh, not, not terminally injured, but injured to the point where they can't get out, you know, of the canyon or the river and you're there illegally, 
Uh, do you just suck it up and, and call the, the authorities and get them in there to get your buddy help? Or? Well, most of the people that I like to jump with are very well trained, have good backcountry rescue skills, uh, good climbing skills, can do extraction, um, first aid training. I've done CPR. We've done splinting on compound fractures. You know, when it's this, if, if it's life threatening, uh, then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll suck it up for sure. And we'll, most of us are smart enough to carry electron, uh, ELT, you know, a, a, tra- a position, a locator, locator. Yeah. So you can always call the SOS if you really need to and cell phones and radios and that kind of stuff. But if we can avoid it, you know, we're going to take care of ourselves, take care of each other. And I've seen splints and stitches and, you know, uh, carry people out, whatever's necessary. So advanced first aid is a pretty good thing to know. Yeah, it's good to you know to know who you're going in the in the mountains with. If you're going to go play, I like to go with people that have a good knowledge skill set. You know. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, I got to bring up. I was watching as I was researching you a little bit, and I was watching some YouTube videos, and there's a video there with you and Steve Hubbard in wingsuits, and Steve got himself into a, a spin that just looked terrifying right from this end. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, we organized a uh, camp not too long ago where we're trying to share those of us who are into racing and really making the wingsuits go as fast as we can make them go. We open it up to teach the skill set to people who are up and coming and wanting to learn to go faster and fly more powerfully in their suits. And Steve and I were charging uh, he was doing just fantastic. He'd really been pushing his own boundaries and upped his top speeds by 20, 30, 40 miles an hour more than he'd ever flown before. And uh, just got his head down a little too low. Started, and I've been encouraging him to start dropping his head and look under his arm. And what changes the shape of your your wing when you're flying like that and actually makes it more productive to get your head down a little lower. And he ended up dropping a shoulder and basically put himself into uh he turned himself into a propeller. He got enough of a offset in his wings that it flipped him over and he started rotating and that kind of thing it, it can happen to anybody if when you're learning to wingsuit but it's of course it's more likely when you're in a larger wingsuit or if you're really trying to push the suit to its performance capability. And this was his first time having to deal with it and uh you know it definitely caught him off guard a little and uh pushed his own boundaries and he didn't hadn't trained a good recovery position so that's what I guess made it look a little worse than it really was because he spent more time spinning around than was really necessary to recover from that if you did the proper reaction to it well that's got to be completely disorienting I mean he was spinning extremely quickly well we were doing about 155 miles an hour when he lost control so if you think about a car or a motorcycle like on a racetrack when they lose control of that speed, they're going to car or that bike is going to flip or spin and quite a few times before it's going to settle out. So it's not really any different there. Yeah, no doubt. Well, that's one thing I wouldn't have thought of with wingsuits. You look at wingsuit flying and you know, you see the controllability and you know how cool that must feel and you you slow your descent so you have more time up there, but what I never realized is that same controllability uh of the wingsuit can also 
uh, be evil. You know, like you said, he dropped his shoulder. Well, because he's got a wingsuit on, there's more airfoil, you know, more to catch the wind and actually put him in that spinning position where I would imagine free fall, just dropping your shoulder doesn't affect you nearly as much, right? Yeah, absolutely. The The larger the surface area, the higher the speed, the more sensitive it becomes. So you've had eight cutaways. Eight were intentional and eight were emergency. Yep. One, why would you intentionally cut your shoot away? Um, well, there's a number of different reasons. One is to do it for the sake of having practiced it. So that okay. the first time that you're doing it, it isn't an actual emergency. And you actually know what the feelings are going to be like. You've used the handles before. You understand the the forces required to operate them and the time periods between when you pull them and how, when something happens. So familiarizing yourself and doing practice emergency procedures is a very valuable thing. And um, then it's also fun to do if you have the correct equipment to do it safely. So if you're doing uh, intentional cutaway parachutes on a multi-parachute system, so uh, test jumps would be a good example of that, where I jump a parachute that's being prototyped and it's not going to be landed uh, because we haven't deemed it to be safe to land yet. And we'll go to something that we trust for the landing. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think a lot of people would look at skydiving, uh, in general and say, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane and, you know, come down in a chute? And then those people would probably be horrified to, to hear that you actually cut that perfectly good chute that you jumped out of the perfectly good airplane you cut it away <laughs> and and try to a uh, reserve shoot just for, for practice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might go back to uh, the whole part about people might say you're crazy, <laughs> yeah. but that's okay. It sounds like you really enjoy it and you made a life out of it and uh, no one can claim that you're not living. That's true. <laughs> All right. So I appreciate your time today, but before I let you go, do you have a fun story to tell us something to put a smile on our faces? Sure. I mean, I was uh, just talking about Harry Parker earlier, and uh, he uh, he's a good friend of mine over many years now. We had a really interesting uh, time when we met. We were put together by friends. Both of us wanted to get a jump in off this particular building in this uh, city of Miami. Neither of us lived there. Neither of us knew each other. Both knew friends of friends. Anyways, we get hooked up to meet up in a parking lot, which is kind of a suspicious enough thing already. We're quite, both quite nervous because you're going to go sneak into some building and and uh, and then jumping off. It was just terrifying having never done it before. It was my first building jump. And so I'm you know, lurking around this parking lot in Miami waiting for some guy to pull up. And there's this guy, Harry, this massive grin on his face, pulls up. <laughs> this guy, you know, huge white smile, and he's just full of energy. And we we go and we sneak off into the building, and I've got my rig concealed in a suitcase because, you know, when you're walking around, a parachute is a very unusual thing to have over your shoulder. So to put it in something a little less obvious, a, you know, a small suitcase, pretty normal thing to be walking around in the city with if you're going somewhere. And uh, we get all the way into the building, and we go to jump. We can't do it, so the winds are bad. we got to wait. We make the smart call. We head off to the Strip in Miami. We have a few drinks. Terry chats up with some girls for the evening and we just had a great time. And by the time the sun's coming up, it's perfect weather. The storm blew through and this got this amazing sunrise jump from this beautiful building over the beach on the sand. Perfect. 
you didn't get to jump right away, but you did get to party a little bit, and then you had an amazing jump when it was all said and done. And we've been friends ever since. That's awesome. Great story. All right, Jay, thanks so much for your time and talking to us today and sharing canopy piloting with us. I think uh, I know I learned a ton, and I hope the listeners did too. And uh, I hope that people come to Flight One and check you guys out if they're looking to uh, start out in their skydiving career. Great. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Take care. Would you like to be a guest on a future show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click the contact us button. 